It's time to make the dough rise, the financial podcast with Brian Doe. Well, hey there. Welcome to another edition of Make the Dough Rise. Walter Storholt alongside Brian Doe, certified financial planner at Livingworth Wealth Advisors, serving you in the Lake Country and beyond with an office in Greensboro, Georgia. Find us online at livingworth.com for past episodes and more information. And we have special guests returning to the show once again. He's becoming a regular on the program at this point. From Main Street Financial Solutions, it's Jamal Mahmood. We'll bring Jamal in here in just a moment. But Brian, first, great to be with you once again and to uh, talk to you on this lovely day. How are you, sir? Yeah, doing great, doing great. Last time we talked, I did tell you about our, our new office and uh, making the move, right? Yes, yes. And any further updates on that? No, no, we're we're plodding along. It's just uh, battling you know, materials, availability, and getting permitting and all the all the fun stuff that goes with a build out. But I, I think it's going to be fantastic. But as, as it pertains to today's topic, I had an interesting email that came from a a person on LinkedIn. It was one of those things that says you you have a a private message in in LinkedIn. I said, ooh, a private message. I better go check this and out. And they're getting pretty good at making it seem like it's a legit person reaching out to you or like that it's going to be a, a good reason. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was actually, you know, a person with a full profile on there, but they were a recruiter for big firms like uh, Morgan Stanley, Edward Jones. And it was like uh, worded to say, hey, we have some great opportunities, would like to talk to you about. And then I looked and saw what, you know, who they were recruiting for and what it was. And I, I just very politely uh, declined and said, you know, I, th- I think I'm good where I'm at, but appreciate you reaching out to me. I didn't want to be rude about it, but uh, I kind of had to chuckle. So we're, we're going to talk today about the comparison between our past experiences with big firms. Uh, Jamal was with, with Northwestern, and I was obviously at Merrill Lynch, and and so we've got some stories to com- to compare and contrast uh, the the two different environments of of independence versus uh, being at these big firms. So I think it'll be good. That'll be great. Yeah, the uh, comparison of a big firm versus now independent, the pros and cons that you guys have found from a working level, but then also the impact that it has on your clients. I imagine one of the motivating reasons uh, for you guys to go independent and can't wait to hear those stories. Let's introduce everybody to Jamal's voice in case they haven't heard him on a previous show. Jamal, how are you? I'm great, Walter. Thanks. How are you? Oh, doing well. And uh, where are you in New Jersey today? Is that? Uh... I am in New Jersey today. Yes. Nice. <laughs> Very good. Uh, we're, we're we're all spread out on today's show. We literally have four different states represented because the hidden voice of the show, Andrea, joining us from Michigan today. She's the producer that we always mention here on the program. Did, so. Didn't we go with executive producer? Executive producer. Sure. Yeah. 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 Okay. I, I didn't mean to uh, drop her a peg on the uh, pecking <laughs> order. So that's right. I think I was demoted to just producer, and she's now executive producer. There we go. Okay. I I think you're exactly right. But pretty cool. Coming to you from four different states on today's show, technology, what a wonderful thing. But yeah, I'm interested to hear your guys' discussion and uh, and the journey, and and interesting that a LinkedIn recruiter uh, kind of situation happened to kind of spark all of this, and you know what's involved in going independent, the pros and cons, and the benefits. So yeah, tell us a little bit more about what this journey has been like for both of you, and 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 the why behind all of it. Yeah, Jamal and I started an interesting conversation that was part reminiscence and part uh, war stories and part you know pros and cons. There's a number of differences between being at a large firm and getting you know what you think is going to be good training, exposure to the industry, and and ultimately what what you would think is like some status or advantage to having a big name behind you. And certainly when you're young and getting started, I think there's there's a lot to be said for 
for starting at one of these big firms. But as we have grown in our careers and as events unfolded with the financial crisis and, and things that happened, I, or and Jamal can speak to, to his transition, but I used that crisis as an opportunity to, to evaluate what other possible structures would make sense in the future, because I did not want to be at a firm where I was not particularly in control. Like, like at Merrill Lynch, somebody decided to put $50 billion worth of toxic assets on the balance sheet and, and basically blew up the firm and, and all the stock awards that I had you know, received and, and was waiting to vest. So I, I, that's what caused me to say, what's going to be best for me, stress-wise and workload-wise and independence, autonomy, control? I, I looked at all of these factors and then said, which of these are going to be best for my clients? And so anyway, we, we've, we've kicked around a bunch of stories and war, war stories, like I said. And, and so we, we're going to try and compare and contrast for you. you know, should you consider a large firm, you know, like, like a Merrill Lynch or Morgan Stanley, to, 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 to name specific names? Or should you be looking at this new and, and actually the fastest growing sector of, of the advisor market is the people who are independent. They use a large, reputable third-party custodian, you know, Charles Schwab, TD Ameritrade, which, you know, of course, they're, they're merging right now. So they're actually going to become a firm, uh, a single firm. And, and then there are others, uh, you know, Vanguard and Fidelity, Pershing, any, any number of, of custodians out there. But that, it, it, it's just a hybrid of the different models and, and structures that, that exist in the old world that have been enabled by technology. So I think we'll, we'll, we'll share some good and bad and, and <laughs> hopefully allow people to decide what structure is best for them. The financial crisis, uh, Brian, was really a, uh, an inflection point for a lot of people. Uh, I think I remember when I was going through it, that was the second major financial uh, bubble that I saw burst. Uh, you and I both, uh, I think, got our start at the bursting of the tech bubble, and that was somewhat mm -hmm. manageable. But I think the financial crisis of 2009 impacted people in a kind of a broader way. Uh, and I remember there was, you know, one, the, one of the stories I, I believe we discussed yesterday. I remember at the height of the financial crisis, I was reading in the Wall Street Journal about how there was a certain kind of security or financial product that two brokers were being sued for selling to their clients uh, at, uh, at another large firm. They, they had uh, apparently sold a bunch of them and then they didn't work out. And then uh, there was some sort of class action suit. And what struck me about it was how it was the, the brokers at the center of it, not the, uh, the, the institution behind them. And mm -hmm. it just got me thinking to about the structure of the financial services industry and how all of these large firms they're at the heart of it as much as they, you know, Merrill Lynch and Northwestern Mutual Life. And again, not to pick on our old firms, but they're all, you know, they're just examples that, of quintessential firms in the industry that all advertise, well, we do financial, you know, we're going to make your dreams come true. We're going to, you know, uh, <laughs> educate your kids. We're going to do, we're going to have you, allow you to have a great retirement. But at the, at the heart of it, they're there to sell financial products. And uh, the advisors that they bring on board they are a distribution system for those products. Mm -hmm. um, and when things go wrong, the advisors end up being a little bit of a buffer between the uh, the client and the institution because then the institution can be like, well, your advisor recommended this, but that's, you know, that's not, uh, uh, that's kind of between you and them. I, and I just, you know, it just made me feel a little bit uneasy about the fact that I saw myself as 
advising my clients and my clients saw me in that capacity too. They trusted me. They came to me for who I was and, you know, what advice I could give them. And like a lot of people, I got to thinking, well, how is it helping to have a large institution there that kind of tells me what I can and can't say and uh, dominates the the news that I get and uh, the information that I have and uh, just kind of saturates the environment around this advisor-client relationship? You know, and, and, and when I decided to, to make that jump, I guess it was uh, over 10 years ago now, it wasn't easy. You leave a lot of uh, comfortable things behind. You leave uh, money on the table, uh, but you do it because you have a belief that on the other side is uh, a more pure relationship where the conflicts of interests in the relationship are, are minimized. It's impossible to get rid of them entirely, but, but uh, I do think they're minimized in the independent channel. And uh, you have the freedom to build a service that is closer to the ideal one that you want. That's why I feel like a lot of people have a similar story to you and me here. Yeah. And getting started there in a large place where you're surrounded by, you know, hundred other advisors and the support structure and, and, resources. It's great. I mean, you, you get exposed to a lot and you learn a lot fast, but at some point, if you look behind the curtain, you, you begin to realize what they're not allowing you access to, or they're, they're steering you towards uh, certain products and, and things like that. And, and there was a point where that just kind of became, not that they were forcing products, but no, they would, yeah. they would incentivize or motivate or have you know, trips and bonuses or, you know, things tied to product <laughs> yeah. sales or, or certain revenue targets and all that stuff. And it, at, at the end of the day, that just felt like it wasn't really, if it wasn't really in the best interest of the client, I wouldn't, I would, didn't want to force it to happen. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, subtle, subtle stuff. But then once you realize what all resources are available independently, there's a gr- lot of great planning tools, a lot of great uh, stock research tools and things like that, that you're actually not allowed to use in a captive environment like that, that I'm now very free to use. And, and it's, uh, I'm able to craft the client experience that I want and, and provide the support level I want. One of the most bizarre conversations I ever had there was, was with my office managing director, whatever, whatever the title was. And I said, you know, I've, I've, I've grown a little bit. I've, I would like to add a support person and, you know, based on how large your practice was, you got allocated uh, a certain amount of, of support provided by the, the firm or the office. And I said, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to pay for the salary, but, you know, I just, I just want to hire my own assistant. And there was some kind of corporate math that had to occur for the branch level about how many, you know, employees they could actually have. And he said, oh, we don't have the headcount for that. I'm like, well, what, if I'm paying for it, what, what, what does it matter? He's, oh no, we we just don't have the headcount for that, and it was this conversation went nowhere, and I finally realized he was just stuck in some bureaucratic, uh, you know, calculus that determined whether or not I could actually go hire somebody to provide additional support uh, for my clients. So it was it, it was just kind of. Not the first, but but one of of many things that said, you know, I'm I'm really not in control here. I had a uh, a similarly frustrating bureaucratic experience early in my career. I, I actually, uh, Brian, I think as you know, I took over the practice that uh, that I run today from my father, who was in the business uh, for many years, and he was he 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 was with Northwestern Mutual Life for oh he he probably spent about 35, 40 years there. Oh wow. Uh, yeah, he he you know so we had a long history over there. 
And one of the most frustrating bureaucratic experiences that I dealt with is that when he got closer to retirement and uh, wanted to transition the business over to me. So as, as Brian, as you know, but uh, maybe all of our listeners uh, are not familiar with, when you work at a place like uh, you know a big wirehouse or insurance company, they'll pay you based on production. So uh, your the revenues that you, you bring in for, uh, from investments or, or, or whatever it is, you're going to get a certain percentage of that based on how much you did the year before. And at a certain point when we needed to make that transition, we had kind of a big hurdle in front of us because when we had to transition the business to me, I had no production the year before. Mm, So mm -hmm. when we moved things from my dad to me, we were going to have to have a huge hit. And I tried to explain to my, uh, you know, the, the, the higher ups, um, that, uh, this was going to cause me to have to let somebody go. We weren't going to be able to afford, you know, to keep the staff and continue to service the clients in the same way that we were doing it before, because we, you know, we didn't have the, the, you know, that, that cut in the production is kind of the margin that ends up being my salary, but they, they ended up, they, they just couldn't budge on that. And it ended up being something where, it's um the, the the whole thing was about production it wasn't in, in in that case it wasn't about the uh uh what ended up being good for the client service and so forth there was no mm-hmm. no give there so that was uh uh very frustrating and it was like they were stuck on the math of that and not saying oh well this is this is just sort of a, a change of name on the on yes. the team and yep. and the the firm is still going to get the same amount of revenue it was a you're new, and so your previous year's number was this, and so we're, mm-hmm. we're going to have to cut your the amount that we're going to pay you because it's crazy. It's, it's absolutely crazy. Yep. Do you remember your uh, training days? I think we we had a couple of <laughs> couple of so interesting stories from that. Yeah. Yeah. So so as much as they were making the transition into calling us, uh, let's see. I think it was it used to be stockbrokers, right? So back back in the the true wirehouse days, you know, that was yeah. about being stockbrokers, and you were just giving access to trades on you know the the exchanges. Then I think for a while they were called account executives. So we got a little bit of an elevation in title in the '90s. But mm-hmm. right as I was joining, they were starting to, to call us financial consultants and eventually financial advisors, and and so it. They were morphing the the name and and the marketing to this financial advisor type mindset, but the training program was still built on cranking out commissions, and you had to hit certain amounts of commissions and uh, assets, and and then they, they put a financial plan uh, objective in there. We and we can talk about those financial plans here in a little bit, but you know, for the bulk of my, there's 24 months that you go through a training program. And you're you're ranked either far exceeds, exceeds, meets requirements, or DNM does not meet. And man, if you hit that DNM for about two or three months, you were out of there. Uh, so you you but by the end of 24 months, you probably had 75 to 90 percent attrition from the people who started the program. I mean, it was almost like it was designed to fail. And I had been yeah exceeds far exceeds the bulk of the, the way through there and then something happened with the market dipped uh, it was like october of 2002 or whatever mm. and in my month 23 the assets dropped because the market went down and they you know the the management came in and they were telling oh you know 
it's tough. You know, not everybody makes it. There's plenty of other things you can do in this. They were getting ready to fire me the, the next month because they thought I was going to drop off the, uh, the, the radar. Well, I, I had, you know, some other new accounts coming in and some things that actually did arrive by the end of the month. And, and so I squeaked by that final month. But, you know, they just they didn't look at it and say, hey, this guy's done a really good job for you know the past 22 months. And oh, we've got this external event happening because of the market. No, it was it was kind of cut and dried. If you if you hit that DNM number at these critical points, you were you were just out of there. It was pretty unceremonious, un uh, you know, logical yeah. or not. If they thought you were a good advisor or not, uh, you know, so yeah. it, it it was it was a nail biter. It is very. Uh, it's based on sales uh, capabilities uh, much more than it is financial planning prowess. Uh, certainly, you know, the, or at least that's what it. That's certainly what our experience was uh, at, at that point. I don't know if it's. Uh, it's probably gotten a little bit better, but uh, but I don't think it's uh, where it probably ought to be. You were talking about uh, the the titles that you were given, how they played around with account executive and financial mm-hmm. advisor and so forth. Right. That reminds me of. Uh, I had been in places, as you know, that there isn't. Uh, the the financial services industry is getting better but still somewhat unregulated with what you're allowed to call yourself right mm-hmm. the, t- the 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 name the title of financial advisor uh is not a difficult one to <laughs> to attain um you can yeah, call I think yourself a couple a tony fan- robbins seminars now and you can call yeah. yourself a financial advisor <laughs> right <laughs> Three easy payments of two thousand dollars, right. but no, you, 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 uh, yeah, putting financial advisor on your business card, it really doesn't take uh, very much uh, to be able to do that. And in fact, I've actually been in places. I never did this, but I, I've been in places where they were like, "Well, you know, you put vice president on your on your business card. <laughs> vice mm-hmm. president doesn't mean anything." Yeah, if you ever get if you forget, if you ever get a business card from a financial advisor from somebody that says vice president. You got to ask what it took to earn that title. Jabal, um, I, I was a, yeah. I, my uh, card, my title was like associate vice president or something like that. And, and I was very close to the vice president level. And I'm like, right. I'm pretty sure if Stan O'Neill leaves, I'm not next in line. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, but uh, well, I, for all the office fans out there, I, I have assistant to the regional manager on my uh, business card now. Oh, that's perfect. Here perfect. Yes. No. That, so, um, but yeah. So that that, that those titles are um, notoriously ethereal uh, in their in in their quality. And then, as far as uh, so, you you said you have a twenty four month uh, you had a twenty four month training program at Merrill Lynch. Four four that, months to get started to pass your months. series seven, and then. As I passed my Series 7 and licensing, the most hilarious thing that I've, in, in hindsight, it wasn't hilarious at the moment, but you, you, you pass a Series 7 and then you are eligible to actually contact clients, right? So they give you the phone and the, a list oh, and really? here you, and, and I, I was sitting there and the guy next to me had been there for about eight months or so. And, and I, I looked at him, he was doing very well, but he was cranking all these calls and calling people and, and his numbers were great. But I looked at him, I said, what do I do? He's like, get on the phone. I said, and say what? He's like, nah, you'll figure it out. <laughs> and that, that was day right. one of, uh, of training, you know, official yeah. uh, training of, of, at Merrill Lynch. And, and then once you were successful, once you were moderately successful, then they actually sent you up to training. So it was yeah. cart before the horse kind of thing. Four months sounds like a long time for me. <laughs> training wise for the life insurance industry. Right. Um, we had, uh, I don't know, you know, I, I, it was a long time ago now, but I, it wasn't four months for us. It was, uh, it was a couple of weeks 
uh, probably oh, wow. two or three of intensive training where you're like in class every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, well, the, the, the license, the licensing is like two weeks, uh, two weeks of class. Then it's like two weeks of product training in, uh, you know, at the, at the firm. And then there's like weekly meetings, touch base to kind of add some things on. But the point is you've got a lot of these, you know, you can sell from day one, like once you have your license, uh, right. and, uh, you're a, you know, not only can you sell, uh, that is your job to go and sell a lot of good advisors today got their start that way. And what can you do? Cause that's how the industry is structured. So it's not that I'm picking on the people who got in that way. I got in that way. Heck my dad sure. got in that way and he, mm-hmm. he had a 40 year career and, you know, it paid for, uh, my college education and, you know, all that stuff. So, but a firm that cares about that truly cares about financial planning outcomes and cares about impacting people properly. And I feel very strongly about this. I get it that Merrill Lynch and Northwestern Mutual are going to take probably pretty good care of somebody who has $5 million, $10 million, because they'll get their best people on it and make sure everything is all you know well taken care of and stuff like that. But you also have to care about the people that buy products from your trainees when they're going out and selling, trying to hit their quotas and make their 24-month goals. One of the most troubling things to me about uh, the, uh, and again, it's it's not just Northwestern Mutual. They're, they're as far as life insurance companies go, they're uh, very well regarded and, and uh, top-notch in a lot of ways. But sure. the entire insurance distribution system is based on this idea that you know people go out and and sell and and develop clients and some of those people they develop into stronger relationships but you have a lot of people that have policies when where their advisors were practicing and then those people are kind of just stuck dealing with those policies and the commission's been paid so nobody else is paid to look out for those policies mm-hmm. uh and we have we even have a term for it in the industry in fact at northwestern mutual you call them orphan policy holders mm-hmm. and what would happen when you had an orphan which of course there were lots of orphans then uh the better cases get farmed out to uh the top advisors who are best able to kind of uh, turn them into bigger clients but everybody else kind of just floats around, gets solicited by the other trainees. Um, it's hard to get service on those policies if you need it. And uh, it's, uh, you know, so that's, that's kind of the underbelly of that whole, of that whole uh, sales driven system. So mm-hmm. the transition had been made from like purely commissioned type sales to the fee based. And, and so that went a long way to eliminate that need to constantly sell, sell, sell. You weren't, you weren't calling people to suggest stuff because you needed to make a transaction. It was that conflict had been eliminated by the time I started. And, yeah. and, and there, there, there were still run, like some people still had a very commission driven practice, but I, I was at the edge of them starting to get people to build fee based practices. And, and so that, that really appealed to me because I didn't want to be calling people and saying, hey, buy, sell, buy, sell, if you didn't really need to. And when I called and made a recommendation, if it was to hold, that might be the best thing to do. And so there was no churn. There was no transaction if, if, if you're telling them to hold. And that's where the, the fee-based model improved dramatically. And it sounds like with obviously the insurance industry too, with the commission model, you'll get great service up front. People will fawn all over you up front. It's, yeah. it's, are you going to have the service and care and oversight five, 10, 15, 20 years down the road when you really need those things to do 
what they were set in place to do and did they perform as well? And, and, and so that, that long-term perspective and that long-term, uh, you know, care that you would, would get from a properly designed structure, that that's the huge difference. Now I picked up on one thing that you said there about the the fee based model, and and I do think that there are there's obviously a lot of people uh, and some of your listeners uh, perhaps uh, will have heard about the, the the virtues of that, and it's true. I do you know there, there is a lot to be said for uh, fees instead of commissions, as you know uh, I do. I still do commission business, uh, and I believe you do some as well, Brian. Is that well, correct? Yeah, certainly. The, the, yeah. And I will not to pick on the insurance industry, but the insurance industry yep. still has probably the they're going to be the last ones to make that tra- that transition. I, increasingly, I see products put out that are fee based, or you have the option for fee based. But yeah, if there's if there's a long term care policy that's needed, a life policy, uh, largely those are are commission products, and so I do disclose to clients. We're working on a fee-based model here, but this is a commission model, and you know I, I don't think I. But by the time I get to that type of solution, people trust me. They're, they they know I'm not recommending it because I've, I'm I'm trying to make a, a commission yeah. or sale or something. But yeah, that that's part of the evolution of the industry. And the other thing that I think is, you know, I think the 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 ideal situation for clients is if there's transparency and flexibility. So meaning, if somebody, because I've seen fee-based advisors just to go on the other you know end of it i've seen purely fee-based advisors who will tout the fact that they don't they never accept commissions uh but then they people will come to them kind of as holistic financial planners and they will be relatively unfamiliar with important commission-based products like insurance right um absolutely and uh so i mean i have just as much of an issue with uh with advisors who will paint all commission-based products and, and uh, advisors uh, with the same brush because it ends up denying clients the opportunity to work with those products when sometimes they're very important. Um, well, so, and and, yeah. and I can, I've seen people with you know, master's degrees and CFPs and uh, all kinds of credentials and, and they you know, tout themselves as fiduciaries and all that stuff, but you do have to have an understanding of these different products and how they work. So there, there's a fine balance between having a good working knowledge of products and having a good working knowledge of financial planning concepts. So, and, and speaking yep. of financial planning, uh, I don't know how it was with at, at Northwestern, but at Merrill Lynch, we had a you know financial plan that we sold uh, oh, up yes. front. <laughs> it was and, not called a finan- It was a personal needs analysis. You couldn't call it a financial plan. Right. So yeah, uh, as, as opposed to using get the... in trouble with the compliance department, they call it a financial plan. Yeah, yeah I, I forget what they, what they even did call it. If it was a, I think it was a, yeah, it, anyway. So with, with the CFP structure, we've, we've got a framework for the financial planning process. I mean, we, we took all the different modules and, and there's a very specific structure to the financial planning process. But largely, I would say the, the financial plan that we did was a low cost it may i think we maybe charged two or 250 dollars and even then that seemed like a big a big number to charge Um, a lot of people give them away for free you know if if you're getting a free financial plan what you're probably getting is teed up to be sold a bunch of products that are going to be the solutions that this financial plan generates it's not going to be a real goals-based you know, what are the personal aspects? What, what are you all really trying to accomplish? It's going to be more of a numbers driven. Here's the gap. Here's the product solution. Here's the sale kind of 
process. So while I have the ability to charge a fee for mm -hmm. just financial planning, yeah. I, I typically put a fee out there and yeah. and tell you know somebody that's new, if they only want to try financial planning, but they're not sure that they want to work with me in the long run, yeah. I will do a fee-based financial plan. But people that become full clients and they you move assets, and I don't just wave it. I just don't ever bill them on it. I just right, right, right. right. They yeah. just become good to lifelong clients, and one day it dawns on them that I never charge them for that financial plan. But uh, gotcha. Yeah. If, if they don't become clients, then, then you bill you know, them. Yeah, then then I, I send them the bill, and it's you know they they've gotten good value for the the mm -hmm. the, the fee based financial plan. So Jamal, how was it for you? Well, what I remember was we had a, uh, we definitely had financial uh, analysis software, but it was, uh, as I was alluding to before, you had to be very careful about what you called it. You had to call it a personal needs analysis. You couldn't call it a financial plan because mm. a financial plan did imply a certain level of fiduciary responsibility, whereas a needs analysis was something that felt a little like a financial plan, but it was a little bit more abbreviated. It didn't, you know, probably wasn't as comprehensive as people who want a financial plan are, are, are looking at. And it was constructed around the, of course, the products that Northwestern Mutual would, you know, that it was most important for them to to move out the door. So, um, and and there's nothing wrong with that as a way of, again, again, of placing products. But the problem is that some people, you know, a lot of customers and clients will go to those people not understanding the difference between an objective financial plan and, uh, and a personal needs analysis from uh, from a company like that. That was uh, definitely one of the the biggest issues. So, you know, like you, in in this environment, uh, we just feel like we're able to um, uh, be more objective and look at looking at clients' entire situations, uh, speak more frankly about a broader number of issues uh, than we could under that umbrella. Yeah, yeah, I think ours were called financial foundations. Financial foundations. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah that is a good one. Well, I you know one thing uh, that I'm glad to have the opportunity to talk about that. Uh, on the on this show, that has always struck me as funny. Is I every now and then I meet a client who kind of will look at my firm, Main Street Financial Solutions and Living Worth and all that, and say, you know, this sounds good, but I'm also talking to a guy from this big firm or whatever it is. You know, it'll be the name of some you know some big bank or insurance company, and uh, they'll kind of imply that that's like uh, a step up. Like, why are you not? What happened? Why couldn't you get a job with that firm or whatever mm -hmm. it is? And, and and the interesting thing that a lot of people don't understand is in the financial services world, it's very much the opposite of what a lot of people think. You get a job in this industry from the big firms because it's almost like those are like those big fish trawlers where they'll 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 sweep the bottom of the ocean and pick up whatever they can get. So anybody, you know, if you're anybody who um any of your listeners, if you want to get into the financial service industry, <laughs> you go you call call one of those big firms because they're constantly recruiting and the goal is you get, you know, you hire a hundred people and maybe ten of them stick around after four years and two or three of them become really good at what they do. Right. Mm -hmm. um, yes. But the way the the talent flows in the industry is, you know, some of the people who stick around at those big firms uh, are some of our are, are very talented financial planners. And some of the best financial planners I know are former colleagues at Northwestern Mutual Life. Um, mm -hmm. The the problem is that um, you can't the name kind of covers everybody up where you can't tell, you know, it's very hard for the average person to tell who's like a really good quality advisor and who's kind of, 
you know, a little bit a really limited good salesperson. What they, yeah, a really, a re, exactly. A really good yeah. salesperson the, or, or new, you know, or new or, or going to stick around or whatever it is. So what happens is a lot of, you know, as you alluded to earlier, the, the, the fastest growing uh, segment of the market is definitely independent channel because all of these, you know, of the people who have established themselves at these big firms, some of them are perfectly comfortable. They stick around. They manage. You know, they they either you know get by and however they uh, can, or they they manage the conflicts of interest and they become, as I said, some you know excellent financial advisors that do a great job for their clients. So it's not to denigrate anybody and everybody who works for those firms, but but a lot of uh, the the people who do well at those firms. Or on myself, I was doing well in the sense that I was doing a pretty good job for my clients there, but I wasn't blowing out the sales numbers, right? right. I was, right. was kind of like, well, I really can't do that well at sales because I don't really believe in this, right? So a lot of those people like you and me, we end up uh, moving to the independent channel and we find that not only are we able to do a better job of our clients, but our sales increase. Like my sales have mm-hmm. gone up a tremendous amount since I left that, uh, uh, Northwestern Mutual because I have so much more confidence in what I'm selling. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and I think that comes through with clients. I get, I get far more referrals and I think people are, are, are comfortable, you know, sending people, friends, family, you know, to me. And, and, uh, yeah, I, I, I definitely don't feel like I'm pushing. Uh, I'm not under any particular pressure to, you know, qualify for anything because it's coming up on year end or something. I, I can just let things happen. Right. Yep. As it as 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 people are comfortable, I say, you know, take your time. If you want to take a little more time, think about it. Think about it. If you want to come talk a couple more times, that's fine. I, I'm I'm not putting anybody on any particular deadline. Yep. Whereas and, 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 and to to your point, if you called up one of the lines for a large firm and said I'd like to, you know, speak to somebody or or yep. if you got a cold call or a solicitation from you have no way of knowing is is this that person that's into your, there are a lot of good advisors and good people at the big firms. You know, so I too don't want to denigrate the ability to get good help there and find good advisors, but you don't know if you're getting the new guy that just, just passed the training program and they said, you know, hop on the phone and, you know, figure it out. Or are you dealing with somebody that, you know, truly knows what they're doing and, and, and can act in your best interest? Yep. One interesting, I guess, statistical concept that I think is important for listeners to keep in mind is if you were to take, uh, if you were to get a hundred, uh, random advisors from, uh, from big firms, uh, in a room, just selected at random and a hundred independent advisors, uh, in a room, my guess is that the independent advisors are the ones that are maybe more likely to have been able to establish themselves without the name. Right with mm-hmm. uh, on the basis of the the quality of their interactions and and uh, a lot of them have had experiences at the big firms uh, that they've taken with them to the independent channel. It's a lot less likely that you've got advisors who are leaving the independent channel and then joining big firms. That's right? true. I do. So, I do right. not see traffic going that direction. Yep. You're right. So again, the the ultimately the way you're going to find a good financial advisor is to interview that person and ask them questions, understand their compensation, get to know them as a person and, and, uh, and just, you know, kind of get a good feel and references and so forth. But if we're looking at, if we're looking at markers, it's things like designations, you know, uh, CFP, uh, and other CFA and other, other key designations. Those are things that if you see them, then, uh, you, you know, you're on the right track 
In, so un, uh, un, unlike yeah. the financial advisor title, the yeah. certified financial planner, certified financial analyst, that's what CFP, CFA, well, that's what those stand yep. for. So uh, unlike financial advisor that any anybody can put on their business card, uh, yeah. those are actual earned credentials that have more structure and curriculum and, and an exam that you have to pass. So uh, def definitely things to look for. Jamal, I think you were making a good point about comparing restaurants and uh, brand name versus non-brand name. You want you want to share that with us? Well, where would you where, <laughs> where would you rather eat if you go? You know, there's lots of uh, brand name restaurants out there, uh, uh, franchises and so forth. And uh, I guess for some people, they signify a, a certain level of quality. But if you're really looking for a good place to eat, most people are not going to refer a, a franchise or a brand name restaurant. What you want is a place where uh, it's owned by a family or somebody who really cares kind of about what they're doing uh, and somebody who's got a lot of experience and uh, is going to kind of do it independently and as a, as, as a labor of love. So you see it in the, in the restaurant industry, and I feel like it's very similar in the financial services industry. Yeah, I would never refer somebody to Applebee's. <laughs> but but Cafe Agora has got the best Mediterranean food in all of Atlanta. So there's that that pretty well sums it up. Well, guys, great discussion and uh, just really interesting to see the intricacies of all of the different elements of this discussion about independent versus the big firms, uh, some of the pros and the cons, and maybe the most poignant thing I think that you pointed out is that a lot of people go from big firm to independent, so few people go the other way around, and that must tell you a little bit about the benefits of going that you know particular direction. And uh, I think it's just great that you guys make those decisions in the best interest of your clients, allows you to do more, to have better relationships with your clients, to be more open and honest with them. And uh, you guys really, I think, seem to take the independent side of this equation uh, so seriously and as so central, such, such a central tenant of what you do. And uh, just glad to hear that it's working well for you both individually, but also for your clients. So very cool to learn about this. And I'm sure... We could probably fill three or four podcasts up if you guys could truly unleash on everything you wanted to say about uh, about all these different uh, different yeah, things. I, I, and I think if we weren't scared of lawyers, we could uh, we could tell some real <laughs> tales if we wanted to. But we'll, we 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 won't go there today. We we kept it uh, we kept the lid on it a little bit today, so that's good. Uh, well, if you want to learn a little bit more about what it's like to work with an independent advisor, explore some of those benefits some more and have a conversation with uh, Brian Doe. You can call today for a free 15-minute introductory call with Brian. See how you get clarity around your financial goals so you can live the lifestyle that you want. You can book a call uh, by calling 706-451-9800, 706-451-9800, or just go to livingworth.com and click book a call. Those are the easiest ways to do it. And we'll put the contact info in the description of today's show as well. Jamal, thanks for joining us on this episode and uh, we'll look forward to chatting with you again soon yeah and uh, Brian as always appreciate your help and we'll talk to you in just a couple weeks sounds great alright join us for new episodes all the time a couple new episodes each month right here on Make the Dough Rise we'll talk to you next time Make the Dough Rise is brought to you by Living Worth Wealth Advisors with a central office in Greensboro, Georgia, but serving the Lake Country and beyond. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all your favorite podcasting apps. Subscribe today and never miss an episode. Just search for Make the Dough Rise with Brian Doe. 
You can also visit MakeTheDoughRise.com to listen to recent episodes. If you'd like to contact the show or schedule a complimentary financial review with Brian and the team, just go to MakeTheDoughRise.com and get in touch through the website. Or call 706-451-9800. Thanks for listening to Make the Dough Rise. Investment advisory services offered through Main Street Financial Solutions, LLC. Information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accurateness and completeness cannot be guaranteed.